to another edition of the TDN Writers Room podcast, a pre-Saratoga edition. Lots to look forward to this week and coming up this weekend, of course, with Great Racing at Saratoga. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News, also co-host the Down the Stretch Show on Sirius XM Radio with Dave Johnson. I am Randy Moss with NBC Sports and the Buyer Speed Figure team. Zoe Kaplan here with First Racing and XBTV. I'm coming in from Saratoga. I will be here all summer long, we already got going and started filming workouts at Saratoga. We have a, tra- a camera on the main track and one on Oklahoma. So we will have tons of works coming your way. We actually caught uh, Major's full brother working the other day for Danny Gargan. Danny says it's the best horse he's ever trained. He hasn't run yet, but, you know, he looked pretty good. Great stuff out of XBTV, as always. I want to remind you that the TDN Writers Room podcast is brought to you by Keeneland. Uh, guys, most of the news made over the last seven days since we uh, last on happened off track with Haiza. And I'm going to preface by saying I remain a Haiza proponent. I think it's going to be very good for racing. I think it's something that was needed very badly. Man, did they have a bad week. Whoa. Um, there were some serious missteps and some things that I think everybody needs to take a look at and sort of reevaluate. Uh, last week, we had an attorney, Alan Pincus, on, and he basically drilled Heisa. Uh, I thought it was a little bit over the top, to be frank. But one of his points was the guilty until proven innocent aspect of what's happening with the people that get caught with, quote unquote, banned substances. And once you're caught with a banned substance, um, go directly to jail. Uh, not, they don't wait for you to get a split sample. They don't give you a hearing. They tell you to get off the track. They take your horses away and you're done. Um, now, why is this a problem? Well, look at what happened with trainer Ray Handel. And, you know, first of all, the old way of doing things didn't work either. That, you know, it, it took a year and a half for these things to be adjudicated. But here's a trainer, never been in trouble his entire life, gets a positive for some weird drug. And they, they lower the boom on him. Six, seven days later, they say, never mind. It came from the feed. It was contaminated. Now, uh, I'm sure he was delighted to be exonerated. But can you imagine what those few days must have been like for him and, and the absolute just horrible thing that he was put through? The answer is they got to put some sort of pause on this, guys. I mean, don't I mean, again, I don't want to go back to the days where we waited a year and a half for this to happen. But having said that. Uh, I mean, they're moving too quickly with this. They need to take a deep breath. And it's not just handle. There's some other examples of this. But um, that was uh, that was one of many um, things I think Kaisa has gotten wrong. Well, look, I know moderation is out of vogue, especially in politics, but in other areas of life as well. But this Kaisa situation right now is just crying out for moderation because we knew this was coming. We knew it. I mean. HISA has just gotten out of the proverbial starting gate. The regulatory framework for HISA is so far reaching and such a change from the from the previous status quo that 
that everyone knew or should have known that criticisms and problems would arise as soon as these strict regulations on paper were put into place in the real world. The key now is to take these issues as they arise and look at the rules and regulations and consider how they can be improved through tweaking. And Lisa Lazarus and Heise talked about this even before it was implemented, or in some cases, it may require even wholesale rewriting of the rules. Because make no mistake about it, uh, these are very complicated regulations and, and a, it's a very complicated situation. There are 132 pages in the Federal Register uh, dealing with HISA, and one page will look something like this. Three columns, small type, written by lawyers, and there's a lot of legalese involved. For example, I'm just going to read one thing that I highlighted here, and I just happened to look at it and see it. Um, if the covered person establishes entitlement for, uh, to a reduction or suspension of the period of ineligibility under two or more of rules 3224, 3225, or 3226, the otherwise applicable period of ineligibility shall be determined in accordance with rules 3223, 3224, and 3225 before applying any reduction or suspension under rule 3226. Good luck for horse trainers who are already uh, feeling overwhelmed with trying to figure out what medications they can give when and when to discontinue and things like that, right? This is something that is a work in progress, not only uh, for the horsemen to try to figure out what's going on, but for HISA in terms of implementing 132 pages like that, there are bound to be a lot of mistakes made on both sides. And this is just gonna take time and patience to work through it. These are training wheels and they've taken them off too soon. Is basically what I think. It's like a little kid learning to ride a bike. You take them off too soon, they're going to fall over, and they're going to fall over until they get it right. And that's what's happening. The only thing that I really have a problem with is the provisional suspension coming before the second test comes back, as we saw with Ray Handel. So Jonathan Wong, 100 horses were distributed. Now, we don't know what's going on with his case. They can't go to the assistant. They go elsewhere. So what... Say Ray Handel had 100 horses. They all got redistributed for those six days or however long it was. And now he's got them back. What if one of those horses gets a bad test the next time it runs under Ray's name, but that horse wasn't in the care of Ray for those six days? So then you've got that to deal with. What I think I would like to see with the provisional suspension, if that's what they want to do, let the assistants take the horses for the provisional suspension. If the test comes back and it's negative, then those horses haven't moved. They've stayed in the same climate that they've been in. And if it comes back positive, then they go and the punishment pursues. That, that's kind of the point I'm getting at. It's like what happens to raise horses in those six days if one comes back now with a bad test that's been with somebody else? How are you going to adjudicate that? Yeah, you know, Randy, I, I thank you, Zoe. And, and Randy, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't ask them to be perfect right from the start. But here's another one. And, you know, I, I thought this one, I'm not going to make any excuses for what was one of the other missteps they had that um, I, uh, I was reporting on and other people in the, in the trade press. The rule where if a horse gets an interarticular injection, they cannot race within 14 days and cannot race within seven. 
If they do, the trainer gets a suspension of up to 60 days. That was the rule. Then they come out and say, well, all these horses uh, uh, were uh, violators of the rule, but we're not going to suspend any of the trainers because they were there was confusion. First of all, I never knew that confusion was uh, a premise for getting exonerated. But then we tried to get the names of the horses and they wouldn't give them to us. And then they came back and, and gave them to us. And, you know, it just looked like they were just making it up as they, they went along. And worse, the worst part about this was that these horses, even though the trainers were not penalized, the horses were that they couldn't race or, or work out for 30 days. Lo and behold, nine of the uh, horses ran during the 30-day process when they were suspended. You know, how did they let that happen? Where it's just, it looked like nobody was paying attention. Yeah, I mean, HISA is so far reaching and there are so many things it's involved with trying to regulate and so many rules to try to deal with that I promise you, even the people within HISA are going to get lost sometimes and are going to make mistakes that they shouldn't be making. It's we're, And we're going to see more of it as well. It's it's something that's just going to be a process to streamline as we go along. Um, as far as the provisional suspensions go, look, a lot of HISA's regulations were patterned after the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, or uh, the uh, USADA, the U.S. Uh, Anti-Doping Agency, something called the IFHA, the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, the FEI, the International Equestrian Federation, which I'm familiar with. Uh, they monitor and supervise the rules and regulations for the Olympic equestrian sport, show jumping, uh, dressage, eventing. WADA and the FEI are very big on provisional suspensions, and the wording is very similar in the HISA rules and regulations as it is, for example, in the FEI rules and regulations. But maybe thoroughbred horse racing is something that's going to have to be treated just a little bit differently. Now, there are some uh, adjustments made, for example, in the rules for WADA uh, compared to the rules for HISA, right? If you hand a track and field superstar a provisional suspension for 30 days, you're only talking about one guy. Okay. If you give a trainer a provisional suspension for 30 days, you're talking about a large stable of horses, multiple owners. You're talking about something that completely run a guy out of business uh, can. So I agree uh, that a lot of this needs to be look, looked at. And to Zoe's point, uh, I completely agree that it looks as if, uh, from what we've seen so far, that Maybe they need to dial back a bit on the extent of these provisional suspensions and treat someone as if they're innocent until proven guilty, as long as the hearings are done expeditiously and the split samples are returned expeditiously. I think that's that's a key part of this. But we're going to hear a lot more of this. I mean, this is something that that but you can't look. I, I know there are people who say like the National HPPA, for example. Oh, this is evidence that you need to just repeal HISA. It never should have been legalized in the first place. And there are also people who are going to say they're going to dismiss all these problems and they're going to say that this is just collateral damage. These are the same people on the other end of the spectrum who say that HISA is the greatest thing to ever happen to the sport of horse racing. But the truth is somewhere in the middle and you've got to deal with these situations and fix them as they arise to make this thing work better as we go on. 
Yeah, we're going to have an awful lot of stumbling blocks. And honestly, kudos to Dan Ross and Bill for keeping up with this. I don't know how you guys have kept up with everything. You've been going down more rabbit holes than Randy. Um, What about the trainer, Randy Nunn? What do we think about him and his suspension and how he's been treated? So that's Doug. His name is Doug Nunn, and he's a a guy based at Mom. Right. right. Um, Has a small stable, but, you know, and and. I, I don't want to make this a piling on Heiser segment, but um, again, back to, you know, his, you know, then lawyers are, are obviously prone to hyperbole. I mean, um, Alan Pincus last week on the show said the way the high Wu regulations are written is pure evil. Now, talk about, you know, come on, Alan, tone it down a little bit. Um, you know, these lawyers love to speak in these terms, but Drew Mollick, the lawyer for Doug Nunn, also had a very good point. Back to the interarticular injections, um, the uh, guys that, uh, as we said, that 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 uh, the, the bulk of these trainers gotten were not penalized. None was given a 30-day suspension for essentially the same offense, but with one little difference. None was. They said they gave him the suspension because he ran the horse within the prescribed period, 14 days. The others were not suspended because they only worked the horse during the prescribed period. But they both, every, all of them violated the same rule. So you're twisting the rule around to get one guy, but not the others. You, know, you have to have some consistency here. And to me, if you let all these other trainers, I believe it was 17 of them, off the hook, how do you make this poor guy spend 30 days on the sidelines for what is essentially the exact same transgression. So, you know, again, will they figure it out? Will they straighten these things out? Let's hope so. But they, they've got some things here they need to work on and they can do a better job, which, you know, Randy has said, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the statements that he's been making about it. So we shall see. Do you want to remind you that the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Keeneland? Verifying the winner of Saturday's Grape Free Indiana Derby was purchased at the 2021 Keeneland September sale, as was Maple Leaf Mel. She is undefeated, now trained by Melanie Giddings, her namesake. She took down the Grade 3 victory ride at Belmont the same day. Let's just not forget about Benedetta, the TDN's newest rising star. She is also a graduate of last year's Keeneland September sale. Keeneland is home of the world's yearling sale. The energy, magic, and momentum of the September yearling sale returns September the 11th through the 23rd. Where will you be? I'll be there. Learn more at theworldsyearlingsale.com. We'll be right back. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing this beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar, reminding us why, for the love of the horse, for generations to come. This week, we debut a new feature for the Saratoga racing season. It's called the Saratoga Minute, brought to you by Naira Betts. And let's kick off the Saratoga Minute now by joining Katie Pertuniak at Saratoga. 
So we are here with Irad and Jose Ortiz for our first edition of the Saratoga Minute for the TDN Riders Room. And I have to ask both of you, who is going to win the Saratoga Meet this year? I do, I do. Irad. I, I mean, uh, we're gonna work hard for, for the meet and hopefully we got lucky. Jose, what about you? What do you think? I think uh, I'm here to win and uh, we're gonna work very hard for it. And Whatever happened, happened. Hopefully we had a healthy and successful meet, but uh, we're here to win. How, how happy are you guys to be to be back in Saratoga? Uh, we are so happy to be back here. It's a great place to be in the summertime and a lot of fans show up every, every day and we love the fan love. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, it's the best horses, the best jockey, the best trainers, best owners in the game. Everybody in the same place, so I'm very, very excited to be back. And uh, the atmosphere of the fans in the afternoon every day is it make it special. Again, the Saratoga Minute is brought to you by Naira Bets. You can sign up now for Naira Bets and get a matching deposit of $200. Bet any track, anytime, anywhere. Here's how the matching deposit works. Just make a deposit within 30 days of signing up for your account. Bet twice the amount of your initial deposit. And Naira Bets will give you a wagering credit equal to the amount of your first deposit. All you have to do is sign up with promo code BONUS200 to get your deposit match today. So a lot of interesting races last weekend, and we're going to talk to Andy Serling in a minute and uh, talk about the Travers with him. Andy Serling, of course, uh, from the New York Race Association. But it's, it's never boring to talk about the three-year-olds. I know the Los Alamitos Derby was not the biggest race. Uh, it's not even graded. But um, reincarnate, uh, and I love, how about Michael Rona's uh, call? Uh, reincarnate has come back to life. Yeah, very clever. Good, well done by uh, Los Alamitos announcer, uh, Michael Rona. But, um, but Bob Baffert has won this race seven straight years and 13 overall. Randy, um, uh, you know, where is reincarnate going to fit in uh, as we now progress into the second half of the season and coming up with the Jim Dandy, Haskell, Travers, et cetera? Looks like Baffert said he might come back for the Travers. Um, I didn't like him in this race, not because of his Kentucky Derby. I mean, he was roasted in that torrid pace, and he had an excuse for that. But the prior race in the Arkansas Derby, I thought, was a little bit blah. Um, and he beat a pretty good horse in Skinner, um, who ran second in there, uh, did get to the lead. Um, oh, fractions were okay, 23 and 1, 47 and 3. But what'd you make of Reincarnate? And, and he, is he a horse that can make some noise when the waters get a little bit deeper in races like the Travers? Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a, a tough audience here. Uh, I, you know, it's nice to see him bounce back. Nice to see him win, um, unless you bet on Skinner, of course. But I, I felt that the field that he beat was pretty subpar once Skinner didn't quite live up to expectations. Skinner hadn't run in 12 weeks. He'd had some issues during that period of time. Uh, I don't think we saw the same Skinner in the Low South Futurity uh, that we saw in the Santa Anita Derby and some of the other races before that. Uh, so other than that, there was nothing in there. And I think Reincarnate basically had a front-running base on balls. I still prefer Baffert's other three-year-olds. Uh, I texted with him uh, this morning. Arabian Knight right now is the horse he's leaning toward for the Haskell, which he's won nine times at Monmouth. Uh, leaning toward uh, Arabian Knight over Arabian Lion. He's not sure now if he's going to have anything at all for the Jim Dandy, but you got National Treasure out there. You've got Fort Bragg, who they will presumably try to stretch out. 
Uh, so Baffert is loaded in the three-year-old department. And I like all of those sources actually right now more than I like reincarnate. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you once more, Randy. Reincarnate, much the best. You could say Skinner had a wide trip. I'm going to say that Reincarnate was just as wide because much like Belmont Park, the jockeys at Los Al, they stay way, way off the rails. So even though Reincarnate won wire to wire, he was five, six wide the whole way around there and just proved much the best. And the last time he won a race, he was on the lead. So it looked like Skinner didn't handle the track or the turns or anything. So I would completely put a line through that. That's not the best version of Skinner. I'm pretty sure we'll probably see him bounce back in his next race. So reincarnate, not the top of Bob's list, but really looking forward to seeing the Arabian horses run this summer. Arabian Lion looking like he's going to be a good one as well. And Zoe Baffert's already unveiling a couple of really nice uh, two-year-olds on Sunday at Los Alamitos. I don't think that I've ever seen this before. A horse by the name of Prince of Monaco, a first-time starter, won and paid 210 to win as a first-time starter. I, I guess the word was out, hey, Zoe? Oh, yeah. No, he was a really, really good horse, uh, Prince of Monaco. I mean, he won by eight. He stopped the clock in 57.21. And you really have to watch the race to see the ease at which he won by. J.J. Hernandez, motionless, just looking around, looking around, looking for company. He was sold. I think he was sold at the Fazig Tipton sale for 950000 Summerfield sold him. A really good-looking son of Spitestown. Um yeah, he is the real deal. And I mean, Baffert's loaded, as always, this time of year. You're going to see him come out running. We saw Muth. He won last month. Um, Miramadi, he was second on debut. He'll come back. He's likely to win. He's still got to unveil Colmus. So we've got a couple of race callers there. They paid $2.2 million for him at the March OBS sale off of Nick Demarick. So he is absolutely loaded for bear come Del Mar. And to be honest, I mean, Muth and Prince of Monaco are just the first couple of drips out of out of the Bob Baffert bigot uh, that's probably going to be uh, flowing full steam by the time we get to the end of the Del Mar meeting. And then, of course, later on this year with these two-year-olds, uh, I'll go on the record. I'll go out on a limb as saying that Baffert will probably win the Del Mar Futurity. He's done <laughs> it 16 times. That's unbelievable that a trainer would win a grade one stakes on 16 different occasions, and probably Muth or Prince of Monaco uh, will make it 17 in the Del Mar Futurity for Bob. Unless he runs something else between now and then, it's even better. And he's been known to break horses' maidens in those graded stakes for two-year-olds at Del Mar, American Pharaoh being one of them. So it's Bob's world down there at Del Mar, and everyone else will be living in it. So uh, the Belmont Spring Meet wrapped up with a couple grade ones on Saturday, the Belmont Oaks and the Belmont Derby, Aspen Grove. Uh, Shipper uh, coming in from Europe wins the Belmont Oaks. Uh, Belmont Derby Farbridge for Todd Pletcher wins. Uh, maybe a little bit lucky because the Foxes, I know Zoe liked that horse, uh, didn't have a great trip, got off to a slow start. But um, I want to get your guys' observations. But, you know, we think of Pletcher, especially with Saratoga coming up with all the great two-year-olds he's going to unveil and, and the three-year-old dirt horses in his barn. Um, he's got the best three-year-old turf horse in the country in Farbridge and the best older turf horse in the country and up to the mark. So, um, you know, uh, and that's one thing about Pletcher I've always noticed and he deserves credit for. He's very versatile. He's good at everything. I mean, he's not a specialist like some of these people are. 
in some categories. But um, a big weekend for Farbridge and Aspen Grove. Randy, any thoughts on those races? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think if the Foxes comes back for the Saratoga Derby and runs against Farbridge again, the Foxes will probably uh, again be the betting favorite. Um, he was only beaten a length by Farbridge. Ocean Murphy on the Foxes was following um, uh, Jose Ortiz on Farbridge for most of the race. And keep in mind also that uh, the Foxes got a Euro break. I mean, he broke behind the field. Ocean wanted to be forwardly placed, he said, after the race. Instead, he was way back at the back of the pack, and Farbridge got first jump on him. A little traffic at the top of the stretch also for the Foxes. He was probably best. Web Slinger also uh, ran well to finish fourth despite a wide trip. As far as the other race goes, the Oaks, uh, as if we needed more. I mean, this is Exhibit A as to why when you're handicapping turf races involving Europeans, uh, you should always give the Europeans extra credit and then go back again and give them even more extra credit. Because if you, if you look at Aspen Grove, okay, as a two-year-old, she ran in a group three race at the Cura. She won it uh, at odds of 66 to one. She came back in a group one at Longchamp. She was 35 to one, ran poorly. Uh, she was 25 to one this year in a group three at Leopardstown, finished third and last time out in a group one uh, the Irish 1000 guineas at the Curra, 50 to one in that race and finished last. She is in no way, no shape, no how a group one level filly in Europe. And yet she comes to the United States and Aspen Grove beats most of the best three-year-old grass fillies in America in a group one right off the bat. And she did it despite uh, lingering behind an extremely soft early pace and ran the last quarter mile in about 22 and two-fifths seconds. So, yeah, I mean, I do think Papilio was probably the best horse in there given the trips, but uh, Aspen Grove, just another example of how dominant these Europeans are when they come over here generally. How about those Glen Hill Farm Silks? Yeah. Wasn't it cool to see those coming over from Europe for Craig Barnick? Aspen Grove coming over from Fozzy Stack, who... A lot of people have not heard of over here in the program. Obviously, he's listed as as Jack, but he's known to everyone over there as Fozzie Stack. She was in season prior to the Guineas, by all accounts, and doesn't handle being in season very well whatsoever, considering her last place finish. She got a picture-perfect ride from O'Sheen Murphy and proved to be much the best, and she gets to stay. She's actually in... um, Jack's barn, Jack Sisterson's barn. I saw him yesterday and uh, she's liable to run in either the Saratoga Oaks or go over to Del Mar for the Del Mar Oaks. But most likely they're, they're thinking towards here because they felt fill the track. We'll see suit her a little bit better. So Aspen Grove, much the best as far as the Belmont Derby. I, I was looking for eight to one on the Foxes because that was right at his morning line. He went off the favorite at two to one and yeah. The Euro break killed him. It, it really did. He was wide, which is fair enough, but so was Farbridge turning for home. A really good race, and I'm looking forward to many more matchups. But how about Larry Saf and the LSU stables? I just assumed he was a Louisiana guy, didn't you? I assumed he was an LSU alumni. He's not. He's from Coney Island. He used to sell knishes on the beach. He's got a New York accent, and the LSU is for his wife, Leslie Saf, and the U is for distorted Uma. 
Uma, something like that. Zoe, I'll say Randy goes down the rabbit hole for these interesting <laughs> anecdotes. You out Randy, you randied us on that one. I do too. And the colors are the same too. The yellow yes. and purple are the same as LSU. That's trademarks. I don't know how we got LSU. Wow. I, I went down that rabbit hole a long time ago. I was ready for this at the Kentucky Derby and at the Preakness. He, he ran Far Bridge in the American yeah. Turf, and he right. ran a horse named Coocher in the uh, Pimlico Special. Uh, LSU stable Larry Surf. And I was really rooting for one of those two horses to win. So I could tell the story of how it's not LSU. Right, right. Even though it's green and gold color, uh, what, what the purple. color is yellow and purple. purple. Yeah. Purple yeah. and gold. Yeah. Anyway. I finally randied Randy. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I learned something listening to you guys there. Hey, a really cool story Saturday night at Prairie Meadows. And jockey Cindy Murphy, 61 years old, had never won in her entire career a graded stakes race. And she guides Crypto Mo to win in the grade three Iowa Oaks. Uh, and by the way, that horse after that race was sold at Basic Tipton. Uh, the horse is a racing age sale for 500000 and will wind up in the Brad Cox barn now. But uh, boy, you know, what a, a, a perseverance still riding to that age, 2,000 wins. Zoe, I'm wondering. Um, she wrote a lot in the Midwest back in, in, in the era where you were writing. Have your paths crossed? Oh, yeah. I okay. know Cindy very, very well. In fact, I can remember going up to Prairie Meadows in 2000. I just lost the bug. And I, I think it had been a month since I'd actually won a race. And I went up to ride the, the Prairie Meadow Oaks. And I actually won and paid like $60. I don't know how we managed to win it, but we won it. And Cindy was there. She'd already won a thousand races by that time. She started in 1986 and, and then she got hurt a couple of years later and it seemed like she would never come back. She, she had a couple of kids. I think she's got like five grandkids now. And the fact her longevity, the fact that she has persevered is just amazing. She is a wonderful human being. She's an asset to the sport. She still looks really good on a horse at 61 years old. She rode that horse absolutely perfectly. And it was the same horse that hurt her. I think she went to the hospital last year with broken ribs, fractured pelvis, you name it. She broke it last year and still came back. You know, if it was me and I'd won my first graded stake and my 2000th winner, I would have dropped the mic in the winner's circle yes. and said, See you later. Thank you very much. I am out. I'm just completely be done. Well, she is going to retire. She said at the end of the prayer. Meadows. At the end of the yeah. meet, but I would have dropped the mic right then and be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, what I thought was kind of neat reading that story, just as an example of her longevity. She won the very first race in the history yes. of Prairie Meadows, 1989. Race one yeah. of Prairie Meadows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have been done. Yeah, but kudos to Cindy and her family and Travis, and they got a nice nest egg there. He vanned that filly all the way down there to Fazek Tipton himself, and she made five hundred thousand. Yeah, really awesome story. Good for her. Meanwhile, the TD and Riders Room is also brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association on opening day at Saratoga. Two Pennsylvania breads, both debut winners against Open Company, will be running in the Schuylerville Stakes for two-year-old fillies. You've got Carmelina. 
co-owned by Cassius King and trained by Robert Reed, who broke her maiden at parts June the 18th by five and three quarters length. She'll be ridden from the rail by Jose Ortiz. And then there's the Manor Sables Dancing Diana, trained by James Lawrence, who won her debut June 17th at Delaware. That one by seven and a half length. She is a daughter of Bolt Doro. She'll be ridden by Johnny Velasquez. Both Pennsylvania breads, both in Schuylerville. The 2023 Pennsylvania bread stakes schedule continues next Monday, July 17th, with the $100,000 Malvern Rose stakes for three-year-old fillies and six and a half furlongs on the Tapita in all the Pennsylvania bread stakes program this year. 29 stakes worth over $4 million. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA Sire, PA Bred two-year-olds at Parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The Fastest Horse of the Week is brought to you by the Fast Stallions at One Star Farm. And one of those is a first crop stallion who got his first winner this week. That would be Audible, the winner of the Florida Derby back in the day, if you remember that, not that long ago. His inaugural winner was on Sunday at Hawthorne Racecourse by the name of Dorothy Crowfoot. The Bay Philly was the three to five favorite, trained by Larry Ravelli, who always dominates up in Chicago. He, of course, also the trainer of two fills. Dorothy Crowfoot controlled the pace throughout and won going away by six and one half lengths. Daughter of Audible, who stands stud at Windstar Farm. Now the fastest horse of the week, Charge It, who won the Suburban Stakes on the undercard of the Belmont Derby and Belmont Oaks on Saturday at Belmont Park. 106 buyer speed figure for that four and three quarters length win. The company charge it faced eh, not too good in the Suburban. She, he was the three to five favorite, but maybe this is going to be the turning point for charge it. If you remember last year, he won the Dwyer by 23 lengths, got a 111 buyer. Uh, people predicted big things then for the son of Tappet, owned by Mandy Pope's Whisper Hill Farm. He hasn't really lived up to those expectations, but maybe the Suburban will be a turnaround and we'll see even more good things from Charge It coming up in the future, this week's fastest horse of the week. Now, the TDN Writers Room is brought to you also by the Green Group, a tax accounting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and designed to save you taxes. Welcome in now the Green Group Guest of the Week from the New York Racing Association TV analyst and handicapper, Andy Serling. It's good to have him back here on the TDN Writers Room Podcast. He's the Green Group Guest of the Week. Andy, about this time last year, we were talking to you, and you know everybody is always looking at the figures out of Saratoga, the handle figures, the attendance figures. And I look back at, this, uh, at the podcast from last year, and you wondered, after a stellar 2021, can we do it again? And you were a little bit worried that maybe the, you know, the, the meat had peaked. Not only didn't peak, there was up 7.7%. Now, granted, only 17 races the entire meet were off the turf, but can we see another increase this year? And how is it that Saratoga never seems to peak? Well, it's going to peak when we have more rain. I mean, you know, you can cut it any way you want. As you said, we only lost 17 turf races last year. We lose a couple of Saturdays, and it's going to have a majorly deleterious effect on our overall handle. So, 
unfortunately, we're only as smart as the weather on some situations. But <clears throat> listen, the backstretch is full this year. There's 1,800 horses in the backstretch. <clears throat> Obviously, we have Belmont Park to go on as well. So, and people love Saratoga. What's not to love? We've all been to Saratoga. We all like Saratoga. So, you don't want to sit around and say we're going to do as well or better than we did last year because weather is going to play a major role in that. But I don't see anything happening that's going to severely negatively affect us outside of weather situations where it rains a decent amount or especially lose some Saturdays. But other than that, there's a great interest in Saratoga and it may, may, remains a place that people just love to go to. So no reason not to be optimistic or hopeful that things will go well. But, you know, you don't want to get caught up in that thing because it's like we're, we're geniuses because the weather is good. We're idiots because the weather is bad or certain outside effects. I think Saratoga is a magical place and it's magical in horse racing, too, and that it seems to continue to do well um, regardless of what the environment is. Not that we're trying to age you or anything. But uh, I don't know the answer to this. I know you pretty well. I'm curious. How long has Andy Serling been handicapping or betting on the races at Saratoga? Um, Seventy-four was the first summer. My family was here. We moved here in the fall of 73. And I went a little bit at the end of the meet. But I didn't start, like, pretending I knew what I was doing until 75. But I was there almost every day in 75. I've missed one day since in over the last 20 plus years um, for a, a relative funeral. Um, but otherwise, I, I've been here for now. What is this? Basically, it's closing in on 50 years. This would be my 49th year of going there almost every day. I'm, I'm ancient. I'm so old I could be as old as Randy. That's <laughs> Nobody's as old as Randy on this no. show. Just working on it. I got a year or two. He's got a year or two margin on me, I think. Um, Annie, what, what is your favorite part of the Saratoga meet? Of all the seasons that you've been here at Saratoga, what is the one thing that you look forward to each and every year? I wouldn't narrow it down to one, Zoe. There's so many great things. I mean, one of the really nice things about Saratoga is all the friends you make over the years. And I have a lot of years here. And I have friends, for instance, my friend Bob who lives in Chicago, who I met when I was a little kid. And he comes almost every summer lately. He missed a couple summers, but he comes with the family. You remember before his kids were born, now they're grown up and all that stuff. But I look forward to seeing people and people you just haven't seen in a while that show up and people you've gotten to know over the years. Because the biggest change, obviously, in racing, which we've all felt in the last 30 years almost, is that people don't go to the track much because they can play at home. They watch on their phones. They they play from home. They watch on TV, et cetera. And, you know, I, Bill and I go back to the 90s when the press box was full and there were lots of people to track. But they come to Saratoga. So all of these people that have dispersed that you don't really see on a regular basis come to Saratoga. So that's one of the really nicest things is friends that you don't see much during the year or at all coming together in Saratoga. That's the nicest part, but also the town itself, walking downtown and and being able to go to, down to have a drink or get something to eat and seeing people and seeing friends. And my mom lives nearby, which is wonderful. So it's the entire experience of Saratoga, which obviously the track is a big part of it and it permeates most things, but it's everything. It's all inclusive. And that just makes it a really special place, at least for me. And I think for that many, many people, and that's, I think, why people come back here. Zoe, Andy and I are so old, we remember the days when newspapers mattered and they actually covered horse racing. Wasn't that a great time to be alive? Um, You're part of killing that, Bill, so own it, you know? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Andy. Yes, okay. Um, Andy, um, to me, and I'll make this statement, I'll see if you agree with it. Um, I think the Travers is now the second most important three-year-old race on the calendar. I think it has actually surpassed the Preakness in Belmont. And this year's Travers looks like it's going to be sensational with everybody who matters 
pointing for that race. What do you think about my beginning statement there? And uh, come Travers Day, uh, who are the horses you're going to be looking for? And who do you think emerges in a division right now that's obviously very wide? Well, the caveat to what you said is if the Derby winner wins the Preakness, the Belmont Stakes becomes exactly. the single most important race of the year. And I'm not saying it's because it's right. a Naira. It's just, you know, the opportunity. It may turn out to be an unimportant, you know, relatively unimportant race if the Triple Crown contender doesn't win it. But if, you know, at that point, it becomes extremely important. Um, I think it's always had a lot of importance, but obviously with horses making less starts and more and more horses skipping the Preakness, skipping the Belmont Stakes. So you don't have the same rivalries continuing through the Triple Crown. And then everybody, Jim Dandy, various races around the country, um, uh, the, the Haskell, but they come together in the Travers and it's going to be the race that matters the most. So I think it's a reasonable um point to make about the way racing's evolved. And I don't think anybody's considering, thankfully, the Pennsylvania Derby to be the be all and end all as it's the last grade one restricted to three-year-olds, at least going long, the Malibu, obviously, at the end of the year. But yeah, I mean, I think it's also because it's Saratoga. It's coming right at the end of the season, basically. And it's sort of a culmination of a whole lot of stuff that's happened during the year. I think the year separates, right? Belmont Stakes, in a way, that day has become a sort of mid-year Breeders' Cup. And then things quiet down for a couple of minutes. And then as you get to Saratoga, you get to Del Mar. I think the racing starts really cranking up again as you head into the fall, all pointing towards the Breeders' Cup. So it's kind of arguably, you could say the beginning of Saratoga is the beginning of the second half of the season because coinciding with Del Mar, I'm not trying to mitigate, say we're so important. They, they're both of us in a certain way and going into the fall with Keeneland and big races and then the Breeders' Cup. So it kicks it off in the Saratoga race. The Travers is in fact, that sort of midsummer derby or it's actually a late summer derby really. I tell people this all the time. I think I've told you as well. Uh, one of the things that makes you so good at what you do is that you do the work. You put in the hours, you put in the homework that it takes. There are no shortcuts no. in this game of handicapping. But along with that at Saratoga, it has got to be an exhausting meet for you personally. <laughs> yeah. Now, we are going to feel sorry for you being at the being at Saratoga every day. But give us an idea of an average Saratoga day in the life of Andy Searle. Yeah, feel sorry for me because I have to live with myself, but don't feel sorry for me for having my job. I'm the luckiest man in the world, um, along with Bill Walton, apparently. Uh, but I, my feeling is, and I do this during the year, but it's even more important to do it in Saratoga is to always be as far, far ahead as you can be. So we draw, you know, I'll start with, we draw Wednesday on Friday, Thursday on Saturday, Friday on Sunday, and then Wednesday we draw Saturday, and then Thursday we draw Sunday. So when that card comes out, let's just start with a Friday, the next Wednesday. I try to get some work done on the track. Usually I'm on the later show, but sometimes on the earlier show. The earlier show, it's obviously easier because I can get more work done, but I try to make my run through as quickly as I can. I come home from the track. The show's over 6.30. I get home about 10 minutes, and I usually work until about 8, 8.15 before I head out to dinner. And I just work. I just get stuff done. I just try to get preliminary work done using Timeform US, watching replays, going through Formulator. Obviously, Saratoga, you spend a lot more time on Formulator, especially than anything else, and with replays, because there's so many shippers coming in. But remember something, and you know this distinctly. We love handicapping. It's what what the part of my job that I love the most is handicapping. I love the puzzle. And so I'm thrilled that I'm in Saratoga. It's a little bit onerous at times, but I love doing the work, but you make it through formulaire. I'm usually not done with that stuff when I go out and I head out to dinner. And I usually end up coming home 10, 30, 11 or something. Occasionally I eat earlier and then I do the work after that. But I'll come home. I'll do another hour and a hour and a half if I can. If I'm not sleeping in the middle of the night and I'm tossing and turning, I get up and go to my computer and get an hour's work 
worth of work done. And then I get up in the morning, I do a little more work. I have breakfast with my mom every day. I mean, you just do it, right? You just get in that habit of doing it until it gets done. You know, I send in replays for Talking Horses every day, which we also use in the Fox show. I try to get them in at night so that the people who paint them can get as head of it as they can, you know, so they're not bogged down because there's so much behind the scenes work done. And hopefully by the time I get to mid-afternoon the next day, I've finished my picks. Now, they're not completely done. And remember, I can come to Monday and Tuesday now with two days off and put aside five hours between the two days if need be. I'd like it to be no hours. But if it's two, three, four, five, eight, whatever, I'll do that to finish up. And so when I wake up on Wednesday morning or I go to the track on Wednesday, I'm done with Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and I'm ready for Saturday. It's a lot of work, but it's a great, great job that I truly enjoy. And I think one of the things that makes my job so much easier is that the people I work with year round, Greg Wolf, Maggie Wolfendale, Acacia, Acacia Clement, Richard Migliori, these guys, they're super prepared. I never have to worry that I'm going to be on. And, and so, so in that case, throughout the year, I work with people. I have great respect for the amount of work and preparation they do. Listen, it's racing. We're going to be wrong. We're going to say dumb things. We're going to say things we wish we hadn't said. But at least I don't feel like the core group of people, especially I work with, and that's not to say the people I work in the summer also aren't prepared, but this is the core group that's here 12 months a year. Um, and, and it's nice to work with people that I feel like, you know, they're, they're doing everything possible to do as well as they can too, whatever that requires, whether it's more work, less work, who cares? So it's Saratoga. I mean, I can get away with three hours at Aqueduct. I can get away with four hours, maybe less at Belmont. Saratoga is a lot more, but you know, it's great. It's still great. Saratoga is great. Andy, what is your handicapping angle? What is your go-to talk tool? Because I, you know, I'm trying to get some info here. What is it that you look at when you're handicapping races? Come on, Andy. Um, I don't. Around. I don't have one. I, I think that different races are going to ask different questions, and I think in discussing a race, especially remember a lot of the work we do, and everybody here is familiar with this, is work you do for television, right? It's work you do to prepare to have things to say. If you were just handicapping the card for your betting, you might look at it a little differently because you wouldn't have to look up all these pedigrees. You wouldn't have to have all these things necessarily to talk about. But to me, you have to find out the theme of a race. And maybe the theme of a race is the favorite just overlays the field. But maybe the theme of the race is the favorite is very vulnerable. The theme of the race, it's very simple stuff. It's not complicated. There's a lot of speed. There's no speed, you know, um, things like that. The horse who's going to be in front is coming off a bad trip, certain things. And I try to evaluate based on what the race, the questions the race is asking me. And if you get the right questions, you have a better chance of getting the right answers. And so I think that speed figures matter above anything else, because at the end of the day, I can come up with some sort of esoteric idea. But if I look through the horse's lifetime and the horse has never run a race that's fast enough to beat three or four horses in this race, the likelihood of that horse winning is very slight. Because it can run really well, and one or two of those horses is going to beat it, right? So you do want to have an idea of how fast they are. Unfortunately, the whole world knows how fast horses are now. There's a bevy of very good speed figures, obviously including the buyers in the form, available to everybody. So you can't just say, oh, I'm going to find the fastest horse anymore. I look at trips. Um, I look at how I think the race is going to set up. It becomes more problematic in New York, where... Riders have a tendency to be less aggressive. If one guy goes the lead, they just sort of abdicate. And I find that often I'll watch tracks like when we do Oakland in the winter, I use the time form pace projector, which I think is a really interesting tool 
both for telling you how they see the race setting up, but also for you to ask the question, do I see it that way? Why do I disagree? Why do I think that's wrong? What am I missing? What are they missing? Anything that promotes thought is helpful. But in those races, very frequently, the pace projection looks very similar to what I'm looking at, you know, down the backstretch. In New York, it's frequently not the case. But nonetheless, you try to get a feeling for that. There's a whole lot of different things that may come into play in a race. Maybe it's a maiden turf race, and there's a, a really interesting horse that has a pedigree to move forward on grass that's been terrible on the dirt. So maybe that becomes a reason. I don't care what kind of numbers the horse ran on the dirt. Now it's in the turf. So I believe in figures. I believe in watching races, trying to understand how the races in the past were run and how they affected the horses in it, and hopefully how that may change today or may affect it today. But I don't want to say that I have any one angle. I'd like to think I'm trying to use as much information as I can. Formulator has so much information out there, so much stuff you can look at. There's the workouts in Saratoga. People like to watch workouts. So much information available now, which makes it hard to win because people can get it, but it's there to, for you to decide what is most important for a given race. So I don't want to cement myself any one thing. Well, that answers your question at all. Yes, okay. it does. Can you handicap the trainers for us? Because you have an opinion. I know you're very close to the Chad Brown barn. Who's going to be leading trainer this year? <laughs> Probably Chad Brown <laughs> or Todd Fletcher. I think it's magnetic <laughs> say the two of them. I mean, Linda Rice has claimed an enormous amount of horses at Churchill Downs. So even though she had this big meet at Belmont where she won, she's got a lot of horses from Churchill she hasn't run. So I don't know that she'll have the arsenal and we'll have the races for her arsenal of horses for her to necessarily compete for the trainer's title, but I think she'll be a bit of a factor. But at the end of the day, it's going to probably come down to those two guys. Um, and it'll turn, it'll probably hinge really on how many good two-year-olds they have, how many yeah. maiden races they win. I mean, Todd Fletcher's capable, and we've seen in the past, of winning a boatload of maiden races. If he doesn't, he's not going to compete for the title. But the other thing is that one thing that Todd is exceptionally good at is being prepared for off the turf. It seems like like MTOs and, and rain off races, Todd's usually in there with somebody. And it's something that he usually has an advantage on Chad Brown. And also, let's face it, Chad's strength is often turf racing. So if we get a lot of rain, they come off the turf, it's going to cost Chad wins and probably give Todd some wins. So if Chad loses five and Todd gains three, Todd's probably going to win the title because that's an eight win swing. So that's something that can happen. But I think at this point where we stand because of numbers, it's hard to see it. You know, I don't know if it's between the two of them, they're 90, 95 percent chance to win it. And maybe Linda Rice is the bulk of the others. Uh, if there's somebody else out there that's going to be there at the end of the season, I don't know who it is now. Lanny, I'll ask the same question from a jockey's perspective. Last year, I read easy winner had 55 wins. Fabian Pratt was second at 41. But now we're coming off a meet where Jose beat his brother at Belmont, has a ton of momentum. How do you think the jockey's race uh, shakes out? I think Irad must be thrilled that Jose now shares his agent and somehow Jose managed to beat him at Belmont. I'm sure that was really made him happy. I, I, I'm sure it made Steve Rushing happy to have the two leading riders like that. But I'm wondering a little bit at some point, and I think it's a very friendly rivalry between the two. Given that Irad's won four of the last eight and Jose's won three of them, to suggest it's not likely to come down to these two guys is unlikely. Now, this is the first full summer that Jose has been with Steve Rushing. He was with Jimmy Riccio before that. Um, Luis Saez did win that one meet, and I wouldn't count Luis out because he's been riding at Churchill, and if some of these Churchill trainers do well that he's riding for, I think he has a chance to win it for the second time. 
listen, Flavian Pratt and Joel Rosario are guys that have a chance. I just don't know that they'll get the same kind of mounts to be able to win a jockey title. They might win a lot of stakes. They might win bigger races, but it's tough to go past the two Ortizes and perhaps Luis Saez just because of the numbers recently, right? Um, how big a favorite Irad is, I don't know. I made a bet with Greg Wolf. He said he was a four to five favorite, so he bet me two hundred. I'm I'm insisting it's a charity bet. Um, he wins one hundred and sixty if Irad wins, and I and I win two hundred if Irad loses. So not that I'm rooting against Irad, but <laughs> the Irad Jose exacta box has always been effective at Saratoga, although it usually doesn't pay. Me, it doesn't pay very much when it when it when it, when it hits. <laughs> Uh, another handicapping policy wonk kind of question. Uh, we know Saratoga, you've, you've alluded to it, is sort of a melting pot. You'll get a lot of horses from Ellis Park and, and from other areas in the Northeast. But what I'm curious about is how you view the majority, which is those horses that come from Belmont Park. Let's, let's take Belmont Dirt, okay? You're talking about a mile and a half oval. Uh, presumably over a track a little deeper than what they see at Saratoga. Do you take the form from Belmont Park at face value when you're handicapping races at Saratoga? Or do you maybe look for more speed at Saratoga, a mile and an eighth oval? How do you handle that? Well, I think you have to judge how the track is playing. And I do the track trends that the for the uh, website and the program every day. And I feel that Belmont for the most part was um, very fair. And this is something you can discuss with your friend, Jerry Bailey, the riders ride Belmont, like the rail is dead, but there's no evidence whatsoever. And then horses will come up the rail and do fine. I think some of it's because they don't feel you get as punished by losing ground at Belmont, the way you do at Saratoga or at Aqueduct. And I think one of the biggest changes you could potentially have from Belmont to Saratoga are two turn races, right? The mile and the 16th routes up in Belmont, where with the extended run, the paces are going to be faster and they're going to be more beneficial to closers because of the race dynamics. Whereas the mile and eighth race at Saratoga, they're going to feature slower paces and they're going to be more beneficial to front runners. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. We had a situation two years ago in particular where I think it appeared to be a big speed track, but I don't think it was a speed track. I think what it was, was an, I'm not a big kickback guy. I think that people overuse it massively, but I think we had a situation with heavy kickback two years ago that was inhibiting closers. So it was helping the speeds because horses weren't able to make the runs. So it appeared to be a speed track, but it really wasn't. It was the nature of the track was helping speeds, and it, but more because it inhibited closers. I thought that mitigated a bunch last year. But I think there's probably a likelihood that speeds it's a little more friendly here on dirt. Certainly the two turn races are because of the paces. But isn't dirt race really conducive to speed in general? And we don't see the kind of fast paces maybe you used to see. You saw in California. We even saw in New York many years ago. So I think it's more conducive to speed. But the thing is, if the weather's okay, we're going to run, you know, six races on the turf basically every day. So sometimes seven. So the dirt stuff doesn't matter as much. And I think the bigger differences are the turf courses are very different here. Belmont Park, um, the the Widener plays much like the dirt, right? With a mile, mile 16th race has a little dog leg, but it's a very fair course for closers. And I know that this was a point of discussion. The outside closers do well in those races because the paces are often faster and you don't get as punished losing a little bit of ground on one turn at Belmont Park. 
So those races are often, when they play fairly, they have a much more favorable um, dynamic for closers. Whereas up here with two turns, the paces may be a little slower. The trips will be a little bit different. So perhaps up here, the turf races, because they're all basically two, sometimes three, except for the sprints, they're going to be more favorable to forwardly placed horses. Not always the case, but, and also obviously have to keep in mind, four-star Dave week, the rail comes down in the inner that week for the first time. The first time it's zero the whole meet. And every year that week, and sometime even the next when they leave it down, you have to be saving ground to be effective. And, and, and that creates very difficult situation for handicapping a given race, but it creates trips for betting horses back going forward. So it's a double-edged sword. That's a big factor here. It, they take the rails down a bit at Belmont. It can mitigate things. I think the Belmont Derby and Oaks were dramatically affected by the rails coming down for the first time since Belmont weekend. And saving ground was at a premium in those races and it helped some and hurt others. So that's the thing to take into account. But I think the turf courses being different probably plays a bigger role than the dirt. Is that Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it really does. Andy, what do you do for fun on your one day off you might have? And for people that have never been to Saratoga, where do they need to go? Give us an overarching view on what you do, where you go, and where's a good spot to eat. I'm, I'm going wherever you are, Zoe. <laughs> All right, well, let's go. I'll be um, I, I usually wait for Randy to come. Are you coming at all this year? Randy? Uh, probably with uh, Andy Beyer on. Uh, oh, the last on, week. Yeah, on the last week of the meet. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So um, I have lots of fun in Saratoga. I mean, I. First of all, my job is fun. Let's, you know, let's not sit around and think that I'm suffering or work. I mean, working hard is working hard is good, by the way. There's nobody here that hasn't worked hard in their lives. And it's not it's a it's a it's a privilege to work hard. Um, but I go out at night for dinner and I, I meet friends or sometimes I don't feel like talking to anybody. I sit by myself and eat by myself at a bar. Um, I see my mom every day for breakfast, which is wonderful. She's 91 and she's amazing. And I sometimes stop by and see her on, on the way out. And I spend a lot of my Mondays and Tuesdays spending time with her as well. Um, you know, I'll go to the movies occasionally on a dark day. Um, It'd be nice if there was something good to see, though I'm waiting for Oppenheimer like everybody else. Um, and I'll see Barbie with you, Zoe. I want oh, to see Barbie. Barbie. I'd love to see um, it. You can come to Oppenheimer and my mom. I don't know if she's big on Barbie. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, I, I tend to eat, as Randy knows, in, in the same place quite frequently um, because I'm happy there, you know, and you find your sort of happy place in Saratoga. And I go and meet friends for drinks and do things. And I don't know, it's. I was on Broadway, I go to Broadway. Um, you know, I, I go to the bookstore, the, the North Shear with this great bookstore in Broadway. And I went to Saratoga Tea and Honey and loaded up on tea for the, for the meat. But, you know, I, I, I think I lead a relatively normal life and I try to get out and have some fun. Andy, before we let you go, one very important question. I know you're a Jeopardy aficionado. <laughs> Could you believe that guy last night that bet all that money and couldn't come up with Tommy John? On the job question, my God. That I didn't, I rarely see it up here because I'm okay. busy doing other things. I also have a TV here which doesn't have um, cable, and I have to use a Roco stick to hook up Spectrum app on it. And yeah, me and a Roco stick, that's that's not happening. I have to have Dave work them over and hook it up. Um, he's smarter at that stuff than I am. So I, I may not see Jeopardy for two months, but I'll be back in New York and see it. It, it was an epic fail last so night. So what was the fail the specifically? So the guy was way ahead and it was, uh, he had the daily double and he could have just sat still. He was going to win the thing. He bet almost his entire bankroll 
The question was, uh, Jabba Chamberlain, the New York Yankees, was injured in 2004 or whatever, and he had this kind of surgery named after a former baseball player. Oh, no. He didn't know that? No, and he did not know it. And I mean, that's obviously never watched a baseball game in his life. Oh. Was, it, was, the, was baseball the, the, the subject? Or was no, it- even worse. It was a medical category, and the guy's a doctor. So, or a resident to be a doctor, just graduated from medical school or something. You would have. He, he ever seen a baseball game? game? Does he know anything about baseball? Obviously not. He's never been to a baseball game in his life. So, I thought he would have got a kick out of that. So, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, even the New York Post did a story about it today. It was, always a, it was a Cliff Clavin moment, in other oh, words. Exactly. Right. Hey, Andy, as always, it's so great to have you. You, uh, I don't know if Saratoga has a color, whatever that color is, you bleed. That caller, Andy Serling, who is a great spokesman for horse racing in general and the New York Racing Association and Saratoga. The meet starts on Thursday, 40-day meet, and it promises to be a great one, as it almost always is. Andy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Anytime. As this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Andy Serling will receive a free one-hour tax consultation with the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group can help you, Go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breads. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. Breeders' Cup Classic winners are bred in Kentucky. Congratulations to the connections of West Willpower, winner of the Stephen Foster this year at Ellis Park, a win-and-you're-in race for the Breeders' Cup Classic. Kentucky Breads. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. We're recording this on Tuesday, looking forward to opening day at Saratoga on Thursday. Of course, the Schuylerville, the traditional opening day feature uh, at Saratoga. Friday, a couple of stakes races, no graded stakes races. But uh, as uh, you would come to expect from Saratoga, a huge card on Saturday. The grade one Diana tops the card, the Kelso and the Sanford. And uh, as is usually the question in the Diana, it's not which trainer will win, but which Chad Brown horse will win. He's won the race seven times, six of his last seven. And uh, we are, uh, again, recording this before the entries are out. So we apologize if we uh, talk about a horse that isn't entered or something like that. 
but he's looking to run four in there in Italian market segmentation, fluffy socks and white beam. Um, but uh, in Italian will definitely be the favorite. Matter of fact, Brown told Horse Racing Nation that this she is the best horse he has in training, which is saying something. So we'll look to see what Chad Brown can do uh, in the Diana. In Italian will be the favorite there. But take a look at Fev Rover coming in there for Mark Cassie. Coming back after racing on July 1st at uh, Woodbine. Looked really good that day and beat Mora. Queen's Plate winner from last year, who was the Canadian Horse of the Year. So uh, Chad Brown uh, looking for his fifth training title in the last six years, figures to get off to a fast weekend in the Diana. Yeah, uh, good luck beating an Italian in there, by the way. Uh, also on Saturday, the Sanford, uh, you've got a Steve Asmussen two-year-old by the name of Gold Sweep, who won the Tremont by nine lengths, earned a buyer speed figure of 91. He'll be a big favorite in there. Mark Cassie has one in the Sanford as well that's pretty good, a horse called My Boy Prince. And then the Kelso, we get a look at Chez Pierre. Remember how impressive Chez Pierre was uh, at Keeneland? I believe it was the Maker's Mark Mile, uh, where uh, he beat some really good horses in there. Uh, so, as as always, we're just getting off to a flying start at Saratoga with uh, with some of the best horses in the world. Yeah, and we'll lead it off on Thursday with the Skylerville. We do have the entries for that, and... I mean, a lot of the money is going to be on Wine on Tap for trainer Todd Pletcher coming off a very, very nice debut effort. But but what's wrong with closing act? I mean, the numbers don't quite stack up, but she's two for two. She's already won a stake. She's a daughter of Munnings. She's trained by Asmussen, ridden by Gaffio, and she's 10 to one in the morning line. Is there a chance that she'll be 10 to one? We shall find out. All right. That's where I'm going. I'm going to try and make some money opening day. Yes, opening weekend at Saratoga. And of course, we'll catch you up with all the uh, Saratoga action on next week's show. We'll have a lot of fun over these next several weeks talking about uh, Saratoga. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV Work of the Week is defunded. He won the Hollywood Gold Cup, a grade one event back in May. And he was on the work tab this week with a six furlong move in a handy 112 and three for trainer Bob Baffert. Defunded also won the Grade 2 Californian this year, was second in the Pegasus and third in the Big Cap. He sure does like Santa Anita. He's been working steadily for his return to the races, which should come in the July 29th San Diego Handicap at Del Mar, according to Hall of Famer Bob Baffert. We'll be right back after this message. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. TD and Riders Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie. It was a big weekend last weekend for West Point. I'm sure this weekend will be big as well, but they had horses running in three graded stakes across the country on Saturday, including Giant Game, who got his first stakes victory for trainer Dale Romans when he went wire to wire in the Cornhusker handicap on the undercard of the Iowa Derby of Prairie Meadows. He could point next to the Whitney at Saratoga. Also on Saturday in the victory ride, Vava ran a really strong third. She'll aim next 
or the test stakes at Saratoga. Of course, the Whitney and the test, both grade ones. West Point is currently also attending all the summer yearling sales and yearlings will be available for syndication in August. If you are interested, if you'd like syndication information on those new West Point horses, contact Debbie Finley. The email address is debbie at westpointtb.com. They look forward to having you join the West Point family. That's a wrap on this week's edition of the TDN Writers Room Podcast. I want to thank Randy Moss, Zoe Cadman, my partners on the podcast, Andy Starling, the Green Group Guest of the Week, our co-producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Leo LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson, and our mascot, not Zoe, remember I said that last week? Our mascot <laughs> is Lucy. She's <laughs> dreaming yes, about you, dinner. There she is. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Aren't we all?